Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Earverm Network. I am Yaga Malark. It has been too long since I've gotten a chance to talk with y'all. It's been very busy on this end of things as we're wrapping up the, the season and moving into the winter season with all of the different things in charge. I'm sure that you as well have been dealing with some busyness. And you know, I'm sorry that I haven't been a more present voice in your in your podcasting experience, but that will hopefully be changing as things kind of mellow out and uh, the new new routine settles in. Um, between you and I, I don't normally like to get overly personal on this podcast, but I lost a couple of people very dear to me and also started up a new job. So if you've noticed a massive gap between the episodes, that is a big reason as to why. And yeah, I, I apologize to you all. I know that uh, I like talking to you and I hope you like listening to me. And so I'm going to try to be a bit more consistent, try to get back to that two weeks. Uh, I've been promising that since this summer and we'll see if I can actually pull it off. But until then, I very much appreciate your patience and your support as we work through these fascinating topics. Speaking of fascinating topics, we have just finished with one. Uh, those of you who have been with us for the last year or so, will have been a part of the, the study of the Napoleonic Maxims. Now, if you recall, when I first started the study of Napoleon, um, I had said that it was going to be a quick tangent, a quick tangent to, to take a break from Clausewitz. Uh, we started that back in February, y'all. We started, we started Napoleon back on episode 95, so it's been a while. And, and it was deceptive. As, as we know from, from reading that book, there was a lot packed into any given sentence. You know, these short maxims, as simple as they may have seemed, were often far more complicated than most people gave them credit for. There was a lot more behind it, a lot more inferred knowledge that Napoleon is expecting us to have, which we, we may not have. We are not a late 1700s general, or an early 1800s general, for that matter. So there's a lot of it that, that we needed to work through, but I'm glad we did. We're coming back to Clausewitz who we don't need to extrapolate on all that much because he does it for us. As we have discussed before, his book on war reads a bit more like a military textbook than it does some sort of grand opus like Napoleon's. But it is a little bit better for teaching, I think, and we're about halfway through it, a little over halfway through it, so I figure it's about time to get back to it. And uh, I'm, I'm excited. You know, it's a far more scholarly study. It's a far more you got to sit down, you got to be with your notes, you've got to... Like, work through it. Like, when you look at my notes, it looks like I'm taking some sort of 400-level college course, just with the number of, of, like, classifiers that are in there. Like, I've got my Harvard 
style and I'm getting all the way down into like re-needing like the smaller versions of the Roman numerals. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a thick one. And, but I want to do it credit. You know, it's what, it's one of those books that because it's so complicated, because it's so thick, I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to not say something that is vital to a, a future concept. And that's why I take the fastidious notes that I do. Whereas with Napoleon, I was, I didn't have to, I could sit there and, you know, kind of think about it and, and spitball a little bit as to what that information might mean. Take down a couple of a couple of notes to give me a, something to go by, but it was far more intuitive in terms of, of figuring out how to talk about any given point. So Clausewitz is a bit more complicated. Clausewitz is a bit more complex, but it's worth it because his perspective into warfare and his approach to warfare are very useful for any of us who want to learn kind of what's going on there. Real quick, I wanted to talk about new players. I've been training up a, a, a several myself recently. I've got a couple of friends who recently wanted to get into Warhammer 40k. And so we've been teaching them and trying to get them up. One of them, he doesn't have any armies of his own, so he's borrowing mine. Uh, and, and the nice thing is I've got the two different knights forces, as we've talked about before. I've got Imperial Knights and Chaos Knights, so two large teams of mechie boys. And they are awesome especially if you've got them against one another. So uh, for my friends who don't necessarily play, it's nice to bring them over and say, hey, we're going to have an epic big mech suit battle. That's a good way to break people in. But I've got another friend who's just started to learn, and he bought my old Chaos Space Marine army. And it is horrible <laughs> to, to go against combos that I used against people to great effect and that are now being used against me to great effect. And I mean, me just kind of sitting there and shaking my head in horror at the horde of possessed streaming across the, the board to make contact with my poor, poor metal walker dudes. So, turnabout's fair play, I suppose. And then, of course, we've talked to Toto before, who, in terms of years played, is technically a newer player, but who has quickly become better than me in, ma in many cases. I, I lose as many games against him as I do win these days, and so it's it's a joy. It's a joy to have him have approached it. And I, and I think there was a lot that went into that. You know, to use Toto as an example, he's a, he's a great player just to begin with. There's nothing that Toto touches that he doesn't go 110% on. That's just who he is. You know, whether it comes to Belagarth or his uh, fighting games or Warhammer 40k, the man is methodical in his approach. He he studies the meta. He studies what is good, what is working, what is what isn't good, what isn't working, and he really not min-maxes because that implies that he's that he's cheating himself in some way, but he, he manipulates it to his advantage. He looks, at, he looks at the situation, the meta as it were, and he makes it to his advantage, which is what we're supposed to do, right? That's the whole point of being a military commander, or the whole point of being a leader, is to make sure that whatever is going on is, is to our advantage. So he's fantastic in this way. Working with him as a new player was just delightful. And I, of course, I wasn't his only teacher in this way. He's got a couple of other people in a competitive league here in town who are extremely good teachers, too. Uh, far better than I, I'm sure, uh, because they understand the mechanics of the game a bit more intricately than I do. You may have noticed, dear listener, that I enjoy reading old books and talking about them. And I enjoy the practical application within 40K, but when it comes to devotion to the current meta, that's not where I shine. But it is where he shines. And so these newer players, they come with different approaches. You know, some people are in, and they're just here for some fun. They're just here to, to kick it and maybe use a spare army to, to have some fun, or just spar with us. 
you know. There's some people who might be a little bit more serious. They might want to get into it for X, Y, or Z reason, but they might not be super competitive. You know, I think of my friend Zane, who got the Chaos Space Marine Army. He's a great painter. And in a big way, his favorite involvement in the hobby is that of painting the models. Playing them, he's, he's good at too, but that was his original draw. My friend Wug, in the same way. Good player, but great artist. And that has definitely been his involvement in the community. And then you have Toto, who is, is becoming a good painter of himself, but has pursued the actual combat element of it with gusto. So new players are a full gambit. And as more veteran players, it is on to us to kind of read them and figure out what they need from us if we want them to stick around, which we should. I mean, not every new player is, is going to be a good addition. I know that in a lot of places they would say, like, any new blood is good blood, but, uh, dear listener, you and I know better than that. We, you know that there are some people well-suited to our games and some people who are not as well-suited to our games. And while I would never be a person who kept somebody from playing a game... Recruiting certain types of people, people who have a mind for this, people who have a passion for this, is probably more what we should go after. My dear wife and editor, who you've heard her handiwork every time I speak, she makes me sound halfway competent, uh, you know, she, she does this as a part of our business. She is extremely good at editing this. She does not give a darn about wargaming. It's just not her thing. And I wouldn't try to force her to do so because, you know, it, if, because it's not her thing, she wouldn't be able to do as well at it as opposed to the things that she is passionate about. So this is a long way of saying that, you know, we want to be as comforting and as welcoming to new players as we can be, but also understanding that certain new players are probably going to shine more than others and stick around a little longer than others too. So that's, it's just good to think about. As we move into these colder months, there are a few things that are on the mind. First one, of course, is the fact that we're going into the indoor season. Here in Stygia, it's been hit or miss recently, and it depends on whether or not we have somebody at the university who can secure us indoor space for the winter. Because fighting outdoors in the winter in Montana is not really an option. It's a great way to get injured. Now, in terms of photos, you can get some great photos out of it, really epic photos of people fighting in the snow, but the propensity for injury in the winter is so much higher. Just so much higher, for, for multiple reasons. One, because the weapons harden up. Secondly, because, the, of course, your footing becomes more unsure. The grip becomes more unsure. And there's a lot of things going on there. And we are not like our, our ancestors who had to fight through all of these conditions with a sword in their hand, regardless of whether or not it was freezing to their palm or not. We can afford to be a bit softer in this day and age. And so it's been kind of up in the air whether or not Stygia has had a winter season because of whether... It was dependent, of course, on whether or not we could get an indoor space for it. And there are pros and cons to having an indoor season. Of course, the, the big pro to it is you can continue practicing throughout the entire year. You don't have to worry about getting rusty, per se, because you're in a state of constant practice, a state of hopefully constant improval, or improvement, excuse me. And yeah, yeah, and so there's, there's definitely pros, and you can you know, kind of deepen that, deepen the community, kind of keep things going, you don't have to worry about things cooling off as much, <laughs> no pun intended. So there are some very deep pros to it too, but in terms of cons, I mean, even football players take a season off. Like, they're still working out, they're still doing stuff, but they take a season off from, from actually hardcore playing to let their bodies heal, to let them get, get some of their, their, their spunk back for the next season. And that is one of the nice things about taking an off-season in Belagarth, too, is that you're able to kind of <laughs> re-knit some of those 
those torn places, kind of kind of nurse some wounds that you may have gotten over the course of the year, and and focus on other things. But the problem with that, of course, is that it cools off in terms of people's interest as well. The pro of an indoor season that people conti- continue to be interested even throughout the the off season. Whereas, you know, sometimes if you've got the the lack of it, you know, people aren't going to have as much passion when things come back in the spring. So an indoor season is definitely a mixed bag. I'm definitely participating in it. I enjoy the catharsis of fighting enough that I don't particularly want an off-season. And I take enough... I'm I'm listening to my body enough now in my older age, not old age, mind you, but older age, that I can take you know a, a weekend off from time to time to listen to my body, to let it heal or to let it rest in the way that it needs to. Seeing as <clears throat> I am no longer a young man in his early 20s who has the absolute need to go out there and fight every weekend, I can still be involved in the community. I can show up and help to teach. I can network. I can, you know, just just kick it and have a good time with my friends and newer members and everything. Like, I can still absolutely be involved. So, for me, having the indoor season is definitely a pro because it still lets me be uh, intimately involved in my community, whether or not I choose to fight at that given time or not. So, I rather enjoy it personally. Real quick, because we touch on these things on this show, I did want to touch base on Israel's war in Gaza and on the the conflict conflict ongoing in the Sudan. Now, both of these instances, it is difficult to provide any sort of tactical analysis. I think we talked about this in a previous episode, where because of the asymmetrical nature of this conflict, we don't have you know, the sides moving against one another. It's not like the Ukraine where we have a conventional style conflict where we can see the shifting of the front line and we can kind of analyze what, what equipment is being brought into where and the political capabilities, you know, bup a dup a dup You know, this is, is entirely different. When you're dealing with a situation like in the Sudan or in Gaza, it is operating off of different rules. So I'm not going to go into a huge amount of analysis on it. And, you know, part of that is because it's such a sensitive topic. You know, and there's, there's a lot of people who are suffering in this. There's a lot of pain coming out of these conflicts. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to diminish the Ukrainian conflict at all. Please, please don't think I am. But what I mean to say is I study conventional warfare, and I am in no way qualified to comment on the geopolitical relations between powers within the Middle East. I am, quite frankly, a white dude who reads old books and who likes to sit in his mountaintop talking to himself. I am not the man to solve <laughs> the crisis in, in between Palestine and Israel. So I'm not going to try to. Lastly, before we get on to the, the recap that we're going to be doing today, I wanted to talk about the Ukraine a little bit. I found this YouTuber who I am absolutely crazy about. And once again, I need to put on the disclaimer that he doesn't know me from Adam. Um, he doesn't know that I'm endorsing his stuff. I just like what he puts out there, and I want to share it with you all. Um, and he does this... His name is... Denis Davidov, that's D-E-N-Y-S-D-A-V-E-Y-D-O-V. And he does a, every day, a little 20 minute or so video on the newest stuff on the ground, where the movement has been, where ground has been taken, uh, what the different generals and and other things are are kind of going on and saying. He he has a very good channel, very detailed, has access to all, all sorts of information that I don't have access to. So if you want to check him out, um, he is he is doing amazingly <laughs> at his job. I I have nothing but praise for the guy. He's he's great. I watch him every day at this point because I like to to be well informed. And so somebody who's on the ground, as an aside, I think he has the 
the I don't mean this uh, in a dismissive way, but I think he has the cutest accent because he's got like a Ukrainian accent for sure. You can tell that he was originally a Ukrainian or Russian speaker growing up, but you can also tell that he seems to have learned his English from like a British English speaker. So to the American ear, to my ear, it's a very, very interesting accent that he has because it kind of combines those that Slavic nature with the with the more Anglo nature of the British accent. So, I just find it he's fun to listen to. He's knowledgeable. He's well spoken. I, yeah, I recommend that if you are as interested in um, documenting for yourself this conflict, that he would be a good one to go to. And again, his name is uh, Denis Davidov. But I think that we have. Uh, you know, putzed around talking about this this intro stuff for a second. Let's get into this uh, this recap real quick. So let's get into our quick recap of where we were before we got back into Napoleon. Uh, also, as a quick aside, I don't know if you all have seen Napoleon Ridley Scott's Napoleon film that just came out. I saw it on opening day. I loved it. I, th I thought that it was fantastic. I thought they really captured the character of Napoleon, both in his tactical brilliance and just his strangeness. I mean, he's just a strange man. Let's be honest. Like, anybody, any of you who have studied Napoleon know that he was just a strange guy, and I was happy to see that that was in this movie. It wasn't just a romanticized or a, vi uh, or a vilification of, uh, of the Napoleon story, but a more realistic view of it. So I highly recommend it. Any of you who, who have enjoyed this little study of Napoleon or enjoy war movies, it, it was a good one. Ridley Scott did it again, as, as he does. But kind of coming back to this, before we got into our study of Napoleon, we had been talking about the defense of certain locations. So let's kind of go back over that real quick, and the next episode we'll pick back up where, we, where we're supposed to be. And I apologize if you suddenly hear whooshing in the background. I am currently recording indoors, and not in my outdoor office space because it is currently 21 degrees Fahrenheit outside, and I haven't gotten the heating set up in my office yet this this year. I was slacking on that. So, uh, in lieu of freezing, I decided that uh, the being inside. So if the heater kicks on, you'll hear it whoosh in the background. But so we were talking about the defense of locations and of mountains, and one of the big things that Clausewitz stressed throughout this entire uh, section was that a defensive battle does not mean that you are wholly on the defensive. Just like a defensive campaign does not mean that we are wholly on the defensive. Because remaining completely on the defensive keeps us from being able to respond. Keeps us from being able to take opportunities to make our opponent unable or unwilling to continue the fight. So even in a defensive situation, whether it be tactically or strategically, there is still a need for some offensive action, as a general rule. So it, it's it's... It's good to remember this. It's good to remember that just because we are on the defensive, that, that is not an absolute state. It can be in flux. In fact, it needs to be in flux. This is something that I, that I often tell newer fighters who are a little bit trepidatious about throwing a shot. Like, you know, we've, we've, got, we've had people come through who are amazing at blocking, just incredible, who they couldn't land a shot because they didn't know how to turn that around. They didn't know how to take their defense and make it into some sort of counterattack or... or you know, strike back at their opponent. So this is an important thing to remember, that this is, that the defense is not static, that it is not something that is unchanging or completely wrote in stone, that it is something that is a general state 
of, of our army or our military action, but also doesn't necessarily limit us entirely. We talked a little bit about fortresses and their utility on the battlefield and how, how very diverse that utility can be. You know, obviously they, they offer protection, physical protection for anybody who is within like a, a, you know, a given range, a cannon range of them, of course, sniper range, and those who are within the fortress itself. This is you know, like a stereotypical need for a, a castle or for a fortress, is this idea of the static defense. But what it also does is it provides an anchor for a sphere of influence, an anchor for an ability to, to move out into the countryside and engage in operations while still having a solid place to fall back to, a solid place to have your reserves, a solid place to have uh, a magazine, to have our supplies stored, uh, a solid place to send new recruits to. You know, this, this uh, a fortress serves multiple purposes, and on any given battlefield that you find one, you will find that it is serving a lot of different functions while being there. I mean, even even in uh, into Napoleon's time or Clausewitz's time, fortresses and castles and whatnot uh, were, were huge, and they've continued to be so. I mean, there's a reason that there's a U.S. fort in most of the border states, you know, the, the states where we might suffer an external invasion. There are forts all over the place, and they might not be the, the style of fort that was made for cannons that were popular for about 500 years, but they are there to extend the protection to the local area and to offer a sphere of influence to the wider area. So in this way, fortresses are still useful, and in the Ukrainian conflict we see this even. like There is there's a lot of emphasis around these larger defensive networks. And the larger towns and with with like walls and whatnot, you see that these are being favored. Uh, in particular, of course, if there's a uh, the ground that is favorable, like at, at uh, Abdivka. So, yeah, uh, fortresses are good. Fortresses are good. Um, the second or the, the this third point that I wanted to make sure that we drove home is the difference between a defensive position and an unassailable position. A defensive position, of course, invites our enemy in. A defensive position says, please, please come and waste your material, please come and waste the, the lives of your soldiers fighting against this particular position. A defensive battle can be, I mean, it's, it's you can just think of it as, as trying to provoke a defensive battle. And so it's usually done up in a way where it can ambush the opponent or, or sticky them in some way so that there's another uh, flank that can be hit by some, some other general, some other division. There's a lot of different reasons to set up for a defensive battle. Now, the difference between that and an unassailable position is that, as the name implies, an unassailable position is supposed to be unassailable, which means that any commander worth their salt will avoid it. If they can, they'll go around, because why would you go after an unassailable position if we can avoid it? So, in this way, if you want to be attacked, if we want to provoke offensive action that we can turn to our benefit in some way, then we need to make sure that we remember to be defensive, not unassailable in the way that we set up our positions. Now, when it comes to something that we don't want to be touched, perhaps even hearkening back to that last point, a fortress where we're keeping our magazine or our food supplies, well, in that particular case, we want to make that unassailable. Making certain bridgeheads and other forms of transportation, making those unassailable, is huge. I mean, even in the Ukraine right now, you see a huge emphasis placed on the exchange of lines of supply and lines of retreat. You know, I, I just talked about Avdivka because that's one of the big uh, actions that's going on at the time of this recording. 
and the Russians are trying to get around behind the Ukrainian position to cut off that route of supply. But the Ukrainians have done that all over the place too. When they uh, did their landings at Krinky, uh, they were going after a supply route as well, the main supply route, uh, moving up and down the, the Dnieper River there that was supplying the Russians back and forth. It was a huge blow, the bridgehead that they developed there. Um, so obviously you can't patrol that much road. Like there's a lot of road in the Ukraine <laughs> that's, that's being used. And at the moment, it's the wet season, so a lot of it is not usable. So that which is, is being guarded very well. But that also controls. That also means that, uh, for instance, at Avdivka, the Ukrainians can fight a defensive war. They are not in an unassailable position, but they can fight a defensive war because they know exactly where the Russians have to go in order to be effective, because the majority of the, the roads are completely nasty. Like, if you've seen anything about the weather taking place in the Ukraine, particularly eastern Ukraine at the moment, I would not want to be in one of those trenches at all. Under no, no condition would I want to be in those trenches. Under no condition would I want to be trying to dig those trucks out of that mud. Uh, track vehicles seem to be doing better, but most of the other, like, axled vehicles, like, they're just, they're just not cutting it in that area. But that means that the few workable roads where these, like, trucks and stuff can go are heavily defended. And it is known where they are. There's not a whole lot of sneaky flanking that can take place here. So even though Russia has the numbers, even though it has the willingness to just throw, as uh, Denis says, meat waves at their opponent, uh, this predictability has made Avdivka a far more defensible position than it may have been during the summer. Um, so, yeah, in, in this particular case, the Russians are losing a whole lot of people attacking a defensive position because... It is not unassailable, and it, it is a tempting target. Lastly, let's talk a little bit about the defense of mountains. Mountains are a place where all the other rules go out the window. Like when we were talking about um, asymmetrical warfare and how it applies its own rules, Clausewitz was teaching us that the same thing is true in mountains. There is a lack of lateral mobility which is to say that moving from, from side to side, trying to support one flank or one valley or the other, is much more difficult, if not impossible, in mountainous setting, whereas lateral mobility is a huge part of open field warfare. You know, being able to move from one place to another, you know, do a flanking move, something like that, that's something that is not available when we're dealing, generally, with the defense of mountains. And because of this, there's almost always an anchored flank, at least one anchered flank. And this is something that we have talked about being important since day one. The idea of eliminating one area where we can be flanked and making sure that we're strong there. Whether this is, you know, kind of hugging the side of the board in 40k or uh, kind of making sure we're edging near the, you know, the edge of the world in a larger, like, combat game. Um, you know, whatever this case may be, sealing that place off from having to worry about long flankers coming around is huge. And uh, mountain warfare, you have this. You know, it is a predictable route by which your opponent will come. Not everybody is going to march elephants over the Alps, and even those that do will probably lose the vast majority of those elephants on their way over. So this anchored flank is, is easier. You don't have to worry about maneuvering or setting up our, our army in such a way that we can try to find an anchored flank, try to find a, uh, a fortress or a river or a lake or, or a swamp or some other place that we can comfortably assume that our opponent does not have the same mobility. The other, another huge rule about, uh, def uh, you know, when we're defending mountains is that mountains are one of the few places that offense is actually favored. 
multiple times throughout Clausewitz's works and uh, many other of the military scientists that we have studied have said that the superior form of combat is that of defense. Because you know, in terms of just numbers, in terms of how the, the fight comes to and the way maneuver works, the defense just has an edge. And that is not true when it comes to the defensive mountains, because once something starts a rolling, it is hard to stop. Whoever is on the offensive and has their opponent on the back foot, it is difficult to stop that because everything is moving in one direction. It's not like the defense can sidestep their opponent figuratively or literally and kind of get a different angle. In this particular case, we're dealing with, uh, you know, the fact that there's nowhere to go, just backwards and forwards. There is no lateral motion. And so because of this, offense is favored, that momentum pushing forward, keeping our opponent from, from getting their, their feet underneath them if we're engaging in proper pursuit protocols. So, um, yes, mountain fighting, again, it turns most of the rules on its head, and that's especially true when we talk about the um, benefits of offense and defense. And these, these rules are opposed to regular warfare, as we've talked about. There's, when we talk about regular warfare, conventional warfare, we're talking about you know, most of the stuff that we've ended up studying outside of Abu Bakr Naji. But yeah, so mountains are, are very much different. Well, my friends, my dear listeners, I think that's the, the end of our little recap episode here. I hope it's been educational, <laughs> informative, and it's got us back up to speed so that next episode we can jump right back in to uh, the defense of rivers and streams with dear Klauswitz. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.